Welcome to the Fitness FAQs podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Vadnell, Australian physiotherapist and calisthenics expert. Jeffrey Schofield is a fitness expert with over 100,000 followers across social media. He has endless knowledge about building muscle naturally. This podcast will help you combine calisthenics and weights to transform your physique the smart way. Jeff, welcome to Fitness FAQs, mate. How's it going? Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm doing well. I want to start with what made you discover the world of calisthenics? It was it was kind of by accident. Uh, I think a lot of people over the past two or three years, they uh, <laughs> they were kind of forced to change their plans. And so that's what happened with me um, in early 2020. Uh, the gyms closed. I, I actually live here in China, and so they closed for, for a long time. And uh, one of the few things that actually kills your gains. And so I was doing, you know, dips. I was doing pull-ups. I was doing lunges, Bulgarian split squats. And uh, it was kind of miserable, actually, um, until this, the next lockdown, which was actually this year. And I discovered ring training. And to me, that was like a total game changer because you don't have to do like 30 dips in a row you can you can make it more challenging and so you know there are so many variations to actually make it not boring i guess and so you know i really enjoy those and you know you can actually at least for upper body you can get just as good of a workout as the gym i found that a lot of people came to calisthenics through that reason and they discovered the importance of using correct technique for range of motion, proper tempo. And they're like, Ooh, a push up is harder than I thought when I have to make it harder to actually get progress, which, which was refreshing. Yeah, a hundred percent. And this is one of those things where the mentality is totally different. Like it's not as numbers focused because you're always moving your body weight. And so the progression is more like your technique and how you feel and like making it more challenging rather than just like add weight to the bar, add weight to the bar, add weight to the bar. And so it, it, it was different, but it was, it was very refreshing and actually a nice change of pace. And now if my gym closes, I'm like, eh, all right, like, you know, back to rings basically. Of course. And that's the simplicity of hypertrophy training. When it boils down to it, if you want to get in a good workout, if you know the right exercises and how to train sufficiently to failure, as you said, rings are a viable option in that respect. Yeah, it was super freeing as well because you're not, it's basically the idea that no matter what happens, if you have someplace to put your rings and the rings, which are not expensive at all, like you can at least maintain your, your progress, if not keep gaining. And so that's just a very freeing thought where, you know, if you're traveling or if things close down or if like there's some kind of, you know, post-apocalyptic world, we can keep those gains. 100%. And I feel that that level of empowerment is really good because in the fitness culture, it tends to be quite binary. Oh, I don't have access to my normal gym equipment, my normal routine. Screw it. I'm just going to do nothing and just atrophy into oblivion. Whereas... We know that having the calisthenics toolkit allows you to, to still make it happen. Yeah, hundred percent. How would you simplify building muscle for people who feel overwhelmed? So I think it's important to realize that hypertrophy is quite a forgiving adaptation. So you can gain muscle anywhere from like 
five reps to 30 reps. Um, and, and actually you can gain, you can gain muscle with sets of three and four. It might be a little bit less efficient, but on a per set basis, five to 30 reps should be fairly equal. Like there's benefits to each, each area, but you know, overall it's not like you have to hit eight to 12, right? There's a, there's a pretty big swath. So you're loading, you know, in the rep range, very flexible frequency. We used to think like more frequency is better. It was, you know, very much a thing a few years ago. Now, you know, it's more about the volume that you're doing, apparently. Um, in terms of exercise selection, again, it's it's quite flexible. You know, calisthenics, machines, barbells, dumbbells, they can all build muscle. And often, according to studies, they're fairly equal, like a push-up versus a bench press. The results are not going to be wildly different. There's benefits to each. There's drawbacks to each. Um but both are absolutely viable. Taking a view of treating your training like an experiment is very, very helpful because science is not going to give you the answer. It might get you headed in the right direction and prevent you from doing anything really bad, but you have to be observant and listen to your body and chart your progress and actually write stuff down. Um, like I imagine you keep a training log, um, like, how could you not, you know? And so I get people telling me they're plateaued and I'll be like, okay, well, let me see your training log. And they're just like, what, what? <laughs> like, what is like, you, oh, you don't have a training log. Okay. Well start that report back in six months or something. Right. And, you know, so you can, you can take comfort from the fact that it is very flexible, but also that you do have to take responsibility in experimenting and actually, you know, using the noggin in order to analyze what is going on and you know changing things over time in order to see what is actually providing results for natural people is strength and muscle growth correlated to a certain extent yes and no um mostly yes so if you see someone and they have huge legs they probably have strong legs right? Like usually people's biggest muscle groups tend to be their strongest muscle groups. I would say strength is very important to focus on as a beginner. And if you're getting distracted with like pump workouts or, you know, metabolic stress or something like that, I went down that road. It's not a very efficient road and it can definitely waste a lot of time. I think maybe for enhanced lifters, they put out that kind of content maybe because they're more risk averse because they're more at, at risk for injury. And so they do these fluff and pump workouts, higher volume, just flushing that trend bologna sandwich infused blood into the muscle. And uh, they get begged that way. But even most enhanced lifters are about as strong as they look. Not all, but if you look at a lot of enhanced lifters, like Ronnie Coleman, he was brutally strong and he was ridiculously big. And you know, to a certain extent, those still go hand in hand regardless of a uh, pharmacological status. I feel like the people that are truly focused on hypertrophy would be spending more of their time above that five reps. So consequently on command, they're not going to be able to display this top end neurological output. But the beauty of hypertrophy training, we're biased over here, we love it, is that you can teach that how to convert into strength at a late, like a later point through this whole like software hardware analogy. If you have the muscles, you can teach them how. Yeah, 100%. Like my 
my all-time best bench press, and I'm kind of putting myself on blast here, 250 pounds, 115 kilos. And I could do more if I specialized and if I really wanted to work, you know, work into that one rep max, because I've done four sets of 10 at 210 pounds, 95 kilos. And so I could, if I maxed out today, hit more than that for sure. But that's not useful for me. That's not going to be what actually gets me to my goals. And so if you put on size and you get stronger at reps, yeah, you can convert that later to one rep max strength over the course of, you know, a, a, a peak and then a taper and everything and, and, and trying to specialize in that. But to a certain extent, that's kind of wasted time. I've, I've had an eight year base phase, essentially, um, especially now where I am like purely interested in hypertrophy. And I'm not as concerned with driving up my hyper-optimized one rep max numbers. And I found that I feel better. I feel healthier. I have less aches and pains. It's the training that I enjoy anyway. And so don't let the internet bully you into feeling bad about your strength levels. Uh, this is something, it's common, you know, comments that I get all the time where someone is like, oh, bro, you, you only lift this much. And I used to feel bad, which is why I would try to specialize in it to try to not feel bad. But at this point, I'm just like, I'm jacked. Like, I don't, you know, that, that's my actual goal, right? Like, I don't really care at this point. And I think being true to yourself and to your goals and the same thing for a strength athlete, if you actually really do deeply care about being strong, don't try to do something else that might take away from that, right? Like if a strength athlete is doing, you know, a two year base phase without actually practicing their craft, I would say their goals have gotten a little bit twisted as well. What did you find that is missing from that purely calisthenics approach? I would say the main thing would be lower body. Um, you can kind of target the hamstrings by putting your feet in the rings and doing like a gliding hamstring curl. It's not an RDL, but like it's something. Nordic hamstring curls are pretty good as well. But again, it's not really a hinge right it's it's more just a very challenging curl um for quads you know you can do sissy squats all day but is it really going to compare to like a heavy loaded squat probably not same thing for spinal erectors right like any typical hinge is going to hit those way more um maybe a little bit for traps right like if you're doing a four plate trap bar power shrug or something that's kind of hard to replicate with like, you know, an, uh, uh, a pike pushup or something. Right. Um, and then, you know, calves, but, but no one really cares about calves anyway. Um, <laughs> and then like adductors and glutes. So basically lower body for upper body. I did find myself kind of missing some isolation movements like lateral raises. It's a little bit hard to replicate. You can do like face pulls, um and like y raises and t raises and stuff and i think that's pretty good but i i do think there's a something a little bit missing very very good for chest i would say rings are like possibly superior to weights for chest specifically uh it's good for back uh very very good for the core and the abdominals pretty good for shoulders overall and so yeah basically lower body what are some of the downsides that you found from a purely calisthenics approach in the world of bodybuilding 
I didn't find that much carryover. Like when I went back to the gym, I was like, damn, I've been doing all this just training. My bench is going to be like way higher than it was before. Now it was like kind of the same. So it, like at least it maintained that. And then I actually found that I was able to progress faster than I had before. I think that's because I was just out of touch with the movement. And then I had, I had gained muscle and I just had to convert that muscle into like into strength. Um, but it wasn't like like if you do a month of calisthenic training and you were pretty decently strong in the gym, I wouldn't expect to go back and be like, oh, this is going to my numbers are going to be like 20 percent higher than they were before. That's not really how it works. Like strength is still specific, basically. And I think that's part of the reason why you don't see many, if any, power lifters using rings uh, or at least it doesn't seem to be all that common just because strength is a skill. And that skill is specific. And would it be something that I might incorporate? Maybe, but there's always an opportunity cost. And like, if you do a whole bunch of ring training, it's going to take away from something else that you could be doing. And so it wouldn't be like the secret to getting a big bench or anything like that. The million dollar question that my audience wants to understand is how do we go about combining calisthenics and weights to build muscle yeah so again for lower body i would say a slam dunk is just using weights um you could mess around with like a little bit of calisthenics stuff as like an add-on or filler or just like to have good control over your own body um, and then for upper body you could either it depends on your split i'll try to be as like specific as possible um i would say if you are using the rings in the same place that you're doing weights you can combine them in the same workout. So maybe you take the rings to the gym in a bag or something. And at the end of the, your workout, you do like some ring flies, some face pulls, uh, maybe some inverted rows, something like that. Or you could put them at the start of the workout. It just depends on how you want to set it up. But if you're doing your rings somewhere else, which is typically what I will do, you would just replace a whole upper body workout with them. So you might just say, hey, I'm going to do one upper body workout in the gym, like with traditional machines and free weights, dumbbells, barbells, et cetera. And then just take one day a week or maybe two days a week or something where you're just doing exclusively ring training. Um, it depends on your goals as well. Like if you specifically want to increase your strength in the gym, I would use it more as an add on because it won't get in the way and it might actually be a nice change of pace. But if, you know, you want a big bench, I wouldn't take like two days a week with exclusively rings just because you're not going to see the carryover. And then if, if you want like big legs and that's a big focus, you can still use them for upper body. But yeah, ring training alone for rings or for legs is not a great option. It comes down to prioritizing and you nailed it there, Jeff, with your explanation. But just to reiterate, it's you got to prioritize at the start what you want most and then add in the rest as more of a filler. But the blessing with hypertrophy training is the non-specific nature of it can be a good thing in this respect for people who want a hybrid approach. Do what is most important to you at the start and then fill in the rest afterwards because you'll have the most energy to progressively overload at the start on your key compound movements if they're weighted or if they're calisthenics. And then you just, you isolate at the end. It, it sounds simple, but playing with the amount of each needs to be an individual journey or 
uh, by a coach or something like that. Yeah, I 100% agree. And I know the term accessory lift has sort of been uh, actually basement bodybuilding. He's done a video on saying like accessory lifts should not exist. And for hypertrophy, I kind of agree because if it's in your program, it means it's important. So like a lateral raise specifically for hypertrophy, it's not an accessory to anything. Like that's why you're doing it. It's like specifically to get the muscle stimulated. And so in my program, nothing is an accessory, right? Cause I'm not focused on a specific lift. Um, so yeah, it just depends on what you want. If you're doing like a power building approach, yeah, you might use like a ring fly as an accessory to your bench. But if someone is mostly interested in hypertrophy, you can kind of mix up the order to a certain extent, right? Like I wouldn't necessarily, you, you could make the argument for like pre-exhausting. So doing like an isolation. Personally, I don't do that. Um, and I'm not really, I prefer chasing performance on the big lifts and then filling in the isolations after. But I do know that some people are a fan of pre-exhausting. And so it might be a good option for some people. There tends to be two main types of crowds where someone gravitates towards using perfect technique. I need to be doing it at this tempo. I need to be using this range of motion. I need to take my joint through this angle to, to stretch and then contract the fibers. Or you get other people who are just like, no, just lift it, bro. Who cares? Are you training to failure? Are you going hard? Where do you stand in terms of that spectrum? So I do think that using super strict form can be a bit limiting. So especially on movements where it just won't be as stimulatory. Yeah, you'll get less fatigue using like robotic form because you'll just hit failure. And then it's like, oh, well, actually, that wasn't that wasn't very difficult. Like, I failed in like a tiny little part of the range of motion of a curl, or if you're doing rows, you know, you'll fail just at the top. And then you're like, well, that's my failure. Like that's, I guess I failed kind of like technically speaking, but there's so much more that the muscle can give. On the other hand, if you're just flailing around and you're just, you know, you're doing rows and it's mostly posterior chain and you're like, yep, I'm working my lats. And then you're like, so do you feel soreness in your lats later or like do you you know are you feeling your lats contract like is there any kind of pump in the back or anything like that it's the, the mike isretel renaissance periodization way of checking if it's working the muscle which i think is, is decent um you know if you're doing bench press and your triceps are feeling a lot more and you're like yep this is a great chest exercise well is it though you know and so i think being somewhere in the middle is probably a good idea where you're not robotic but you're also not flailing around. So you're starting and finishing the exercise with the area that you're trying to target. You know, so if you're doing a biceps curl, you're not like tossing it up and then catching it and then like maybe finishing it with, you're just like reverse power cleaning it or something. You're still starting it with the biceps, finishing it with the biceps, but maybe as you get closer to what would be failure, you use a little bit more momentum. And that's another thing. You can use cheat reps to avoid failure if you are cheating prematurely. So let's say I start to curl with strict form and it gets a little bit challenging, maybe five or six reps in reserve, but it's, it's a little bit tough. So I start cheating. I start using the hips and it gets a little bit more challenged. So I keep using the hips even more. You might say, oh, I went past technical failure. But did you though? Because you weren't actually 
near failure. You were just pushing that failure back because failure is tough. Failure is challenging. And you didn't want to do that. And so you just started cheating. I see that all the time. On the other hand, if you get a slow, grindy rep and you're legitimately zero reps in reserve, and then you cheat just enough to get another rep and then just enough to get another rep, that is beyond failure. That is actually going to be more productive. And so I would say learn strict reps first and have that as your baseline, especially as a beginner, you shouldn't need this anyway. Um, and then maybe be open to the idea later of adding in some cheat reps of, you know, being able to push a little bit beyond failure, at least on safe movements. Like no one is saying, do good mornings when you're squatting to be able to overload the eccentric more on the quads. Like, no, that's not a, it's not, a, not a thing like, oh, when you're deadlifting, you know, Use the spinal erectors more actively during the concentric so you can overload the eccentric when you're sitting and doing an RDA. No, that would be, you do have to be smart about it and realize that not every exercise is the same. So in this like rep and reserve debate, a lot of people, they're treating every exercise the same. Chest supported row, deadlift, bench press, like every, it's just all, all the same. And it's not, right? Like risk to reward, stimulus to fatigue, Every exercise has to be treated individually. Today's sponsor for the show is Fitness FAQs. Use the coupon code PODCAST10 to save 10% at checkout when shopping on fitnessfaqs.com. Enjoy the discount and let's get back to the conversation. I've had a major paradigm shift in recent times where it's focusing more on the effort relative to failure as opposed to the load lifted. And this is where... In the exercises later in my workout, I often find ways to artificially make it more difficult. Case in point, as an example, on a on a push workout, after I've done some type of handstand push-up or dip, I'll include in the bench press. As part of recent transformation, I've been loving this hybrid approach and lifting weights. It's, it's glorious, but my main objective is hypertrophy. So I'm like, all right, how do I make the bench press as hard as possible with as least weight as possible. Introduce the Larson press. So take away that leg drive and it, yeah, hell yeah, celebrate that life, let's go. So it's like on the surface, okay, I'm reducing my loads by, I don't know, say 20% less than I'd normally do, but who cares? I'm getting that muscle stimulus. I'm not throwing up as heavy weights, safer, stimulate. What do you think about that? Yeah, it's the idea of stimulus to fatigue ratio and it, it definitely is, a mindset shift for sure because you start thinking about everything in terms of like the reward and then the cost the risk and then you know the reward that you're going to get from the movement and i don't like to fearmonger and i don't really like to use the term like wear and tear because i think that it kind of implies like every time you do something you're just going closer to the time you die and can't lift anything at all um, like the body can adapt and, and can get stronger over time. And that includes connective tissue. But I also have seen a lot of guys who trained way too heavy for way too long. And they have to train differently now. They've been forced to change things up. And I think the younger generation of lifters, I think it's good to listen to your elders. And it's something that's so hard to do. It's so hard to do, especially like, if you're like 20 or 22 or 25 or something and you're getting into this and some old guys is guys like, you know, be careful about 
maxing out and you're just like, screw this old guy. I'm going to max out. Right. Like that's just your instinct. And so, you know, you see people deadlift and like, it just looks awful. And like, can you adapt to that? Yeah, to a certain extent, but sometimes you don't adapt, right? Like injury is certainly uh, like, I would imagine you've had injuries. I've had injuries. Pretty much every lifter that I've talked to who has, you know, been training hard enough to make gains over, you know, six years, eight years, 10 years, they've had something and most of them have had a big one. And that's the, that's the shift where they've like had to have surgery or they've been like, like I tore my QL in February. And so actually this is when rings were nice because I couldn't train lower body. And so my, it's a, it's like a muscle in the hip or the lower back. And, you know, I could barely walk. I had to brace my core in order to like, to walk. I couldn't tie my shoes. I had to like, you know, it was, it was awful, but it was a mindset shift, right? Because you realize, oh, I'm not a mortal. I, I, I'm made of like, I'm made of meat and that meat can tear and it sucks when it tears. So I think looking at training after that big injury is totally different. And I hope most people don't have to have that big injury because it's, it sucks to go through. And, you know, so listen to people who have been through that. And a lot of the older guys have been through that. And, you know, it, it's good to listen to people who are sort of farther along the road than you are. What was your takeaway from that injury, Jeff? Was there any signs or symptoms that you were feeling and you thought, eh, I'm just going to keep going? Yeah, so I, I, I've always had imbalances, like visible imbalances in the shoulders and the traps in the hips like one side is a little bit more externally rotated and i was just doing too much and not minding recovery i think sometimes imbalances can't really be fixed like i have a family history of scoliosis actually and yeah yeah so it's like i think some some things you just have to work around but if your body is telling you you know i was doing full body training i was doing spinal loading stuff every day um, and then I did like deficit bent over rows at the end of the workout. It was a new movement. Yeah, it was a new movement. Um, I was doing them strict in my defense, um, but it was just like too much, too much rounding in a fatigue state. Um, and I could like feel something wasn't quite right, but I was just like, no, nah, I'm going to do this anyway. And then like, you know, it's like you get that feeling something just boop. And then you're just, oh man. And um, actually I was talking to Alexander Bromley afterwards and he had the same thing and he said it took him eight months to, to get, to get back. And so it's been, it's been about six months, I think, or yeah, six, seven months right now. And I'm just sort of getting back into feeling not a hundred percent, but like probably 80 or 90%. So it, it was definitely a big wake up call. It's oversimplified, but it's worth mentioning the age old adage, listen to your body. If people were just more in tune, because after some experience with training, you know what the difference is between muscle fatigue and just overall global systemic fatigue that could feed into some potential injuries. So it's just having that awareness is so key, but I agree with your sentiment. Unfortunately, you have to go through it and we just hope that it's in a form of injury that's not career ending or overly severe because you need to have that moment to have the awareness that yep. like you said before you're not invincible 
And this whole idea of living to fight another day is huge. I've had this so many times, even in recent six months, you're, you're trying to progressively overload. You're trying to keep the intensity there. You're going to that session, those dips. What I know about that pec tie in there, Daniel, it's, it's, that's, not, that's not the usual type of, type of sensation. And it's just like, call it, okay, move on, move on to the next exercise and treat, treat this with a lot of respect because being injured is going to do a lot worse for you in the respect of lost time compared to one or two weeks of just mending, laying the tissues, adapt. But this awareness, I feel, has to come with time. Yeah, 100%. And I'm, I'm actually very grateful for it in a way because, yeah, it could have been like, you know, what if I had kept going and the QL hadn't torn and like now it's a herniated disc or like something that is way worse or like something that takes years to recover or is never quite the same. And so it's actually in a very weird way. Like you don't feel that way when you can barely walk, right? You're not like, oh man, this is fantastic. Um, but it is like in hindsight, actually a nice thing to go through. And I don't wish it on anyone, but it is a pattern that I see in people who have been lifting for a long time. And listening to your body, it is it is important. And sometimes the reps you don't do are more important than the ones you do do. What is a popular bodybuilding advice that you believe is a myth that you'd like to crush here today? So I don't know if I would categorize this as advice, but I do notice a lot of people who don't think that you can achieve very much naturally. So they see a lot of these guys online, uh, you know, these SARM goblins on TikTok. And there's just, just this idea that like after three or four years of training as a natural, like just pack it in, you're done. You're not going to make any more gains. Have fun with your half a pound a year of muscle. And their natural standards are just super low. And it's like, and so they think that everyone bigger than them is on steroids. Uh, they think that their genetics suck. Often they're trying to stay too lean. And so they're not eating and they're not, you know, actually progressing. Often their training knowledge or like their lifestyle setup is just not that great in terms of making gains. And so they hop on TRT at 17 years old or something, right? And they don't, they don't need it, but they, they think that's what is the key to making gains. And, you know, I have to do a whole video on TRT just because it is, there is a lot of people, there are a lot of people who really glorify it. And I think that, especially in the fitness industry, people can make more progress naturally than they actually think. And, you know, if you're willing to put in the time, the effort, and it's going to be slower, right? Like, let's be real, like steroids, they do work, right? Um, so it's going to be slower, but what you build is yours. That That's such a great feeling. Like if I'm going traveling or if I move somewhere else, I don't have to worry about like, like where am I going to get my TRT? Where am I going to get my whatever, my, my growth hormone and stuff? And I don't have to worry about, you know, off cycle and on cycle. And you just build the physique and then you can keep it pretty easily. Like I could maintain whatever I build in a couple of hours per week if needed. And so it is a very freeing feeling knowing that I built this, it's mine and no, no one can take it away from you. Like that's, that's a great, great feeling. And so when I see people who are really black pilled and negative and nihilistic about what they think they can achieve or what other people can achieve naturally, to me, I would say that's the most pernicious 
fitness myth going around right now. I feel that there's a bit too much comparison to others without reflecting on one's own journey and just seeing once you get that glimmer of progress, you start seeing a bicep vein, you're getting a little bit more girth around different areas of your body. It's game over for most people that I've encountered that that see that relative to themselves. But as you said, it just the expectations need to be realistic, a bit less comparison to others and just being patient because it's going to take years as opposed to weeks or months with the alternate option. What body fat percentage range would you recommend for someone that is, say, doing calisthenics and they also want to include weights and just incorporate a hypertrophy philosophy to get bigger? What would you say is the body fat percentage range, which is kind of getting the best of both worlds, not getting so heavy where it would take you such a long time to cut and actualize your your growth, but also um, not being so lean where it detracts from performance as well, like especially with moving your body around in space. Yeah, I would say probably just main gain, bro. Um, it's uh, For me, it's between 12 and 20%. So it's known as the, the dual intervention model. So basically, if you get too lean, your body's like, nah, we need a little more energy. If you get too uh, fluffy, let's put it that way, your body will say, hey, we don't need this much this much fat tissue like we're good we're good we don't we don't need any more and so for me it's 12 to 20 that's my window basically and i feel pretty damn good anywhere in that range if i start to push beyond around 20 percent i start to get my, my hunger goes down a lot my my appetite basically becomes nothing um i'll become a little bit sluggish um I'll feel like I'm not processing the food as well, basically, maybe due to insulin sensitivity, just not being quite as good. Um, and so for me, I try to keep in that range. Now, could someone just main gain at like 15% or 16% or wherever their so, sort of ideal set point is? I'm skeptical just because I've heard stories of people who did see results from going up above where their body, quote unquote, wanted to be. And I do think there is value in push, pushing things up a little bit. Now, you don't want a dirty bulk. Like, I, 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 I know I shouldn't have to say this, but I kind of have to say this because someone's going to take it and run with it and just use it as an excuse. Don't dirty bulk. Um, just being in a small surplus is fine, especially as you get closer to that upper uh, intervention point. You're, going beyond that is probably not going to be useful for muscle growth. It's definitely not good for health being like, 25 or 30% body fat. Um, I think 20% is okay. Maybe not perfect from like a longevity standpoint, but like anyone who is like 20% is, is killing you quick. Like, no, it's not, that's not based in any kind of evidence. Um, and then below 12%, I, I don't see the point in most people going below 12% for calisthenics athletes. There might be some performance benefit. You know, if you look at Olympic sprinters, they're pretty lean, right? Because that is something that helps them. If you look at gymnasts, they're pretty lean because it's something that helps yeah. them. But they do absolutely have to sacrifice in most cases to do that. Very few people are naturally lean to the point where like seven, eight, nine percent body fat is like they're just, yeah, I'm totally fine. I don't know what the fuss is about this being tough for that's super rare. 
And I think sometimes those people don't realize how good they have it. And they often can use this as like marketing, but that is, it's kind of genetic, right? Like you see these people who have always been lean, they've never had to focus on it. And so, you know, it's just their normal state of existence. But for most guys, I would say 12 to 20% is a pretty good range. Myself personally, I've been on since the start of the year, a surplus for the first time in a long period, just because as you've alluded to, performance is sacrificed when you're in a in a leaner state, yep. even if you are focused on calisthenics-based movements. So since the start of January, I'm up, proud to say, about three and a half kilos, given that time. The question I want to ask you is, what rate of weight gain should I be looking at on my on my bulk? Is that an appropriate rate of weight gain? Would you like to see it quicker, slower? So you're in a sort of unique position because part of your brand and just part of being in the fitness industry is staying somewhat lean, right? Like if someone is 25% body fat, they're going to have an uphill battle with like yeah, making Yeah, but content. I promise I've got big brains, bro. Just listen to me. <laughs> I mean, like it or not, like how you look is sort of your business card in the industry. But normally I'd suggest like about a kilo a month, maybe two. Um, so maybe a bit faster than you've been going, but again, yeah. like being a little bit more cautious in your case is probably a good idea. Um, for most people listening to this, also you're, you're much more advanced than the average person. So like your rate of gaining muscle is going to be lower as well. So you could make the argument for that. You need even more of a surplus to drive the adaptations, but I would say maybe a better way of looking at it is like, you just can't handle as much of a surplus because you're only going to be stimulating so much progress i think both models sort of have merit um like do you really force the gains or do you yeah. accept the slower progress it might be a self-fulfilling prophecy where it's like oh i'm only gonna gain this much so i only eat this much so i only gain this much right uh, so, yeah but, yeah but it's hard to say like um yeah so i would say for most people if you're like a beginner and you're lean err on the side of eating a bit what you think is too much because any fat you gain is not going to be that hard to, to, you know, to take off later, especially yeah. if someone is naturally on the lean side. Like if someone is a beginner and they're like 30% body fat, totally different story. But if they're like 12% body fat, they've always been lean. They've never worried about like overeating. They've never struggled with like eating disorders or overweight or anything like that. Yeah. yeah. Go hard. Like I gained, I went from 68 kilos to 77 kilos so like 150 pounds to 170 something pounds in two months when I started lifting. So I, I put in some work with the fork and a lot of people need to pick the fork up, you know, if they're a beginner, if they need to um, put on weight, put on muscle, you know, if you're, if you're that new to training, I think, yeah, just eating a lot, eating whole food, good food, lots of food, all the food is probably a good idea. Of course, you have to be, you know, smart about it as well. But I think a lot of people can get away with more than they think, at least in that case. If someone is starting around 20%, it's more of a blurry area where maybe they can recomp, maybe they can main gain in that case. Um, maybe they can get in a small surplus. Um, but if someone has been lean their whole life, I think it's better just to, to go ham on the ham. Jeff, what would you say uh, the most common 
programming mistakes that you see people make? This is one that I made and I do see quite often chasing volume. And some people might think this is hypocritical because I do high volume, but I don't necessarily chase it. I put the quality of the set first in terms of execution, in terms of effort. And then I let the volume be more or less auto-regulated based on how I feel and based on how the progression is going. Whereas in like 2019, there was a lot of like, there were a lot of studies coming out about volume and oh, the, like the, you had the Schoenfeld, I think it was before 2019, but like you had the 45 sets per muscle group per week, all to failure was great for growth. And yeah, it's, it's, it's almost become a meme at this point. Um, but volume was getting a lot of hype. And so I was like, all right, I have to do a whole bunch of sets. And when you go into the workout thinking, oh, I have to do 50 sets in a workout, 60 sets in a workout, which is what I was doing at that time, um, your perspective changes. You don't put as much effort into the set because then you can't do as many sets. You don't execute as crisply because you're tired, right? No one's doing 45 sets per muscle group per week. Like no one's doing that. I think the pendulum is swinging in the other way. Now I see a bunch of like high intensity training guys who are like picking up the pieces of the guys who are doing high volume. So these yeah. guys tried to do, you know, super high volume didn't work that well. Then you have this guy swooping in saying, ah, oh, I have the solution. Like everything, it's the opposites. And the non-sexy answer is the solution is often somewhere in the middle, skewing towards one of the sides, but not one or the other. And I feel many people get caught in that trap of doing a ton of exercises and a ton of volume because they think they should. And as you said, they get that lackluster effort because they have to go through the motions to survive a 40 set workout. But what I've really appreciated with what you've been promoting, Jeff, is you're training hard, you're doing a lot of volume, but then there's sessions where you're like, today, I know I'm not going to get my full effort out of three or four sets. I'm going to do two because I know that I can do two genuine sets relative to failure as opposed to doing three or four somewhat half-assed type of ones. It's not really going to do a lot. You'll get a little bit tired, but you're not fully stimulating. That's a big takeaway I want people to apply. It's just that ability to auto-regulate and still bring the effort and not beat yourself up if you're not doing your, your full volume for that day with sets. Yeah, exactly. I think auto-regulation is super important. And I usually, when I'm writing a program, I'll give people a range of sets. You can do two sets, you can do three sets. You can do three sets, you can do four sets. You can do two, you can do four, maybe three to five. But having that option and not always going for the high number, right? <laughs> but not always going for the low number. The whole point is that like you go based on how you feel. And one thing that stuck with me was Dorian Yates' blood and guts training, which can be a little bit dogmatic at times, but his training partner said something like, that's the one when he got that rep that was like the slow, the grindy one. And sometimes you can feel during a workout where you did that set and you're just like, that's it. I've done enough. Hundred percent. If I do more, it won't help. And it might actually hurt the recovery. And you know, you just finished that set and you're just like, it might be, it might be one set. I've had times where I yeah. did one set of deadlifts and I'm just like, yeah, that's, that's, that's enough. That's fine. Like I don't need any more. If I do any more, it's not helpful. Whereas before, you know, I, I'd be, too emotionally involved and I'd end up doing like 12 sets of RDLs or something 
be crippled for a week and a half and then you know you might not even be gaining muscle if the muscle damage is excessive and so being able to tell in the workout in the moment where you know you've done enough based on the disruption based on just the effort of the set based on where you are in your progression um so i sometimes do one set to failure right like my quote unquote deload if i ever deload if i go in and i'm feeling a little bit lethargic and i know it doesn't sound like a deload but if i'm feeling a little bit lethargic i go in there i'm having trouble warming up maybe i feel a little bit beaten up i might do just one set that that i feel is all out maybe it's a pr maybe it's not a pr but i know that doing more and digging that hole deeper is not going to get me out of the hole and so it sounds weird having you know a deload be one set to failure, but I would rather have that than like a half-assed week where it's like you take your normal five by five and then you go down 20% and like that's your deload. To me, I detest that style of training where it's like super sub-maximal and you just take a whole week and you're just like going through the motions. For me, that's not what is going to do it. And so I would rather deload in a different way, which I don't even call a deload because it's auto-regulated. I don't schedule it and I manage fatigue in real time. It might be an easier day for some areas, but then a really hard day for others. So if my lower body is feeling beaten up, it'll be lower volume, but that doesn't impact my upper body training decisions. Like I know Menno Henselmans has championed the localized deload because the idea of deloading your entire body at once to me, doesn't make a whole bunch of sense. Uh, I don't think it's a horrible way to set it up, but I think that if if one area is tired, it doesn't necessarily mean that another area is tired. And so taking a reactive approach and a localized approach is probably better overall. Muscle soreness and hypertrophy, is this a fact or is it fiction? I think there's a little bit of fact, but a little bit of fiction as well. So I think on the extremes, it's very useful. So if you do a, a workout and then you're just like brutally sore, like you can't drive after shoulder day or you can't walk home after leg day or something, like just you clearly got trashed. I think that's a sign you did too much, right? Especially if you're getting into training. You know, if I write someone a training plan and they're like, oh man, that workout was great. I, I was brutally sore for a week. My thought is not like, yeah, I got him. Like, that's a great work. My, my thought is like, yeah, that may, might have been a little bit too much. Like, you know, feel free to hold back the first week or two as you adapt. On the other hand, if someone came to me and they were like, I've been training for five years and I'm not seeing any results. And so I'm like, are you ever sore? And they're like, nope, I've never, ever been sore ever. I'm like, yeah, we gotta, we gotta. And then I see their set and it's like 18 reps away from failure. Okay. Like now we have an effort issue, right? On the other hand, yeah. If the same person came to me and they hadn't seen any results in five years and I asked them if they're sore and they're like, oh yeah, every workout I'm just, you know, crippled. And, you know, I would say, okay, well maybe you need to tone things down a little bit, but usually you want to be a little bit sore. I would say like mildly, like you should be able to tell that something happened. I would say the day after or two days after, um, in, in most cases, but if you're not sore at all, I also don't think that's cause for concern too much, right? Like if you're progressing, that's probably more important than if you're getting sore and chasing soreness. 
is something that is is probably not that useful. Just use it as a slight indicator, but the numbers are going to be more important. Your recovery is going to be more important. Uh, it's only really useful at the extremes, I would say. With regard to exercise variety, how often would you be swapping out exercises or, or changing things up, so to speak? Yeah, so I personally used to change things up too much. The whole confuse the muscles, shock the muscles kind of thing. And I don't think that's as useful as I used to think it was. I think you want more consistency. You know, it could be eight weeks, could be 10 weeks, could be six weeks. This is where knowing when to make that swap is very, very valuable. And it's just as much art as science. In addition to what you said, the time course for variety would depend on the complexity of the movement as well, I'd say, for your compound exercise, which have a high skill component with free weights, be it an overhead press or a bench press. There's an element of technical proficiency, which just takes time in order to actualize what you can actually get out of the movement from a stimulatory perspective. So that's going to be longer. It's going to be arbit arbitrarily longer than, say, an isolation exercise on a machine. You can go from one machine to the next, and you could probably introduce variety sooner on isolation movements compared to compound and still yield a beneficial effect. Yeah, 100% agree. Like if someone comes to me and they're like, I want to swap this curl out for another curl, go for it. Totally fine. But if you want to swap this deadlift out for another deadlift, that's a lot. It's a lot more neurological and a lot more skill based. And so, yeah, you want to try to keep that in the program if it's working. And a lot of those initial gains, they are skill based. You're not actually necessarily gaining muscle. I know that sucks to hear. Like when I went from five ring dips to 15 ring dips in a week, that wasn't because I was gaining muscle or getting a bigger chest. Maybe, but most of that adaptation is just the stabilizers and the skill to actually perform the movement. And so I would say the more the more balance, the more stability, the more control, the more of core activation that is required, and the more compounded it is, the more co-contraction, synergist, et cetera, that are involved, yeah, the, the longer you're going to want to keep it in. And so if you're going to scratch that dopamine itch by having variation in your program, do it later. Do it with the isolation. If you if you do a different extension variation, you know now you're doing dumbbells, then you're doing cables, then you're doing a skull crusher. Like to a certain extent, that is okay. But if you're doing that with your main movements, it just doesn't work very well. And there's a difference between sensible variety and stupid variety. I'll just coin that term now. Sensible would be interchanging like movements or movement patterns or muscle groups. You get people to a certain point in their training and things get hard or they just get sick of doing it and they'll go from doing squats. Oh, I feel like doing pull-ups instead. And it's like, well, you're completely swapping into a different thing and then you're changing your split and then you're not really giving your body clear signals. Whereas what you're recommending is changing like for like would be the probably the most sensible way to do it. Yeah, I tend to, to arrange things by movement pattern. Jeffrey Schofield, ladies and gentlemen, where can people find out more about your work, mate? Uh, so it's just my name, Jeffrey Verity Schofield on Instagram and YouTube, and then Verity Fit, V-E-R-I-T-Y, fit.com for like educational eBooks and stuff like that. 
Perfect. Take care. Thanks for the conversation. Thanks for having me. Thanks everyone for listening. Visit fitnessfaqs.com to master calisthenics and become a bodyweight pro.